in the book of Daniel. All right, get your Bibles out. We don't put scripture up on screen anymore. So we're just going to put pretty pictures up there. All right, uh, Matthew. Actually, we're going to start off in Matthew. Chapter 4, chapter 24. How many people like to know the future? Like if you could have a crystal ball, you could have like the security of what's going to happen next. You're going to know how your 401k is going to do and... Like, you know, if you're going to retire and have it all settled, you know, you, know, you know, wouldn't it be great if you knew when Jesus was coming back, then you could charge up your credit cards, not pay them off, right? You... <laughs> so isn't that awful? Is I'm the only one that thinks this way? Yeah, if Jesus is coming back, I don't have to pay my taxes, right? Let me get an amen. Uh, the disciples... Ask Jesus the same types of things. When are you coming back? What's our future? We want to know what the future is. Give us the lotto numbers, Jesus. Right? So human nature, we want to know the future. Chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him. To call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? He said, I tell you the truth. Not one of these stones here will be left on one another. Everyone will be thrown down. So he's looking at, at the new temple, the Herod's temple. It was gorgeous. It was ginormous. And he is, Jesus is prophesying the destruction of the temple, the final destruction of the temple until, until they build it again, which it's going to happen. Romans destroyed it. 70 A.D., by the way. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. So a private conversation with Jesus. I would love to have that. Tell us, they said. I don't know. If you had a private conversation, what would you ask Jesus? They, they want to know the future. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? And of the end of the age. When is this, this going to happen? What will be the sign? And when is the end of the age? And we do that. We, we want to know. When is it going to happen, Lord? When is everything going to wind down? When will the aliens come? <laughs> Tomorrow. Thank you. It's the doctrine of eminency. That's the truth of it all. We don't know. Time or hour or whatever. Even the signs are irrelevant because God calls us to walk in an imminent spirit. That meaning that he can come and return any moment. That's the attitude of the heart that we should have. We should plan for the future, but be prepared for any moment that he could return. The twinkling of an eye, we're gone. His church, that is. Jesus answered them, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming that I am Christ. That has happened and that still continues to happen. By the way. And will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars on CNN. But see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines 
and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of birth pangs. And the, you know, the downside of election season is that we just completely get fixated and focused on the candidates. And little do we realize that the world is, is continuing on without us Americans. And there has been earthquakes, and there has been famines, there has been wars. Like, this stuff is being played out, and we have amnesia to it all. We're too myopic about what's going on in our own country that we don't pay attention to the birth pangs that is going on in our world. And, it, and when birth pains, they increase. I've never been pregnant. I, I, I'll just leave it alone. Did not get, it didn't get me anywhere for a service. Didn't get me anywhere. I'm going to leave it alone. Didn't get any laughs. Got weird looks, so I'm not going to do it. But birth pains, as mothers know, they increase, right? And they get more intense, and they get more frequent, and they get harder and harder and more painful. And this is what Jesus is saying, the end times is going to happen, where eventually there's going to be so many earthquakes, so many different things going on. You're not going to, you're going to need a PhD to keep track of the news, like, I just can't. How many people feel overwhelmed with what's going on in the world? Like, you can't keep track of it all. You know, and there's another shooting, and you're not affected because it's just, it's just like, all right, it's just another one. Remember when they first started? Remember Columbine? Remember how wrecked we were during Columbine? Well, there was one last week, and it didn't even phase us. We become used to it. We become familiar with it. We have a familiar spirit with violence and Corruption and heartache, it's interesting. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and to be put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many of you will turn away from the faith, and you will betray each other and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And, of course, in time, eschatology talks about the great apostasy of the church, the great falling away of the church, which Jesus is referencing. It's where truth gets twisted and perverted, and, and then the, they accept it. It seems very, very familiar to what's going on in our culture. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Isn't that kind of an oxymoron there? Because, thing, because the world is getting more and more wicked and violent and scary, what does that do to your heart? Look, the na- it causes our hearts to grow cold. Again, we get callous, we get familiar, we get used to the, the evils of this world. And it's like, ah, and it, it, it can get, in, there's, a, there's a solution to it, by the way. But if we don't guard our hearts, they will grow cold in the society that we live in. We'll, we'll figure out the clue to that in a second, how to guard your heart. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom, heaven on earth, will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So the whole world's going to be able to know what truth is, objectively. Um, I don't have time to get into it, but I believe every person 
whether they were born on an island or in Africa somewhere. They, it, Paul talks about it. They have a revelation inside of them of what truth is. Whether a missionary has brought them a Bible or not, every one of God's children will have to give an account of their relationship with their creator. It's inevitable. But the world is better. This This is the deep conviction of my heart. The world is better when truth is made objective through the word of God. When missionaries showed up into China and started preaching the gospel, started reading out of the Bible, the Chinese folks said, oh my gosh, his name is Jesus? Like we knew he existed. We, we, like, in, like in our spirit, we understand truth, but we just never knew who he was. So thank you for giving us his name. And there is power in the name. And the name of Jesus transforms cultures. The name of Jesus, I wasn't going to go into it, but I think this is where God wants to take us. The name of Jesus, Jesus himself, Christianity is not, it's not an American invention, folks. We don't have the, the market on Christianity. We don't decide what it looks like because we're Americans and we're good at marketing. When Jesus goes into a culture, he keeps what's good in a culture and he gets rid of the evil. He is there to redeem cultures, in some cases to completely regrow cultures. But what we've seen from missionaries or people that have accepted Jesus in, in Japan, their Jesus is a Japanese guy hanging on a cross. Same is true in China and India. They've kept their culture, they've kept their dances, they've kept who they are, and they've incorporated Jesus, but he's changed them. No longer do cannibals eat people. Oh. <laughs> Did you hear about the cannibals that were eating the clown? Does so this taste funny? <laughs> I know. So bad. So bad. There's more to come, folks. There's more to come. All right. Let's go to let's talk about Daniel. Oh, I didn't finish. So when you see Jesus goes on. So when you see standing in the holy place, the holy of holies, in the temple, in that little room where only the high priest goes once a year after he's done a lot of, you know, getting himself clean, he goes in once a year to minister to the Lord in God's presence. So one you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel. Let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down and take anything out of it. It is time. We are going. Bad things are going to happen. If you are... are, one good thing about not being a Jew is you don't have to necessarily worry about this prophecy. But if you are a Jew, you need to, you need to head, head out. Whenever uh, the abomination of desolation, whenever that, whenever the Antichrist goes into the temple and erects a God that honors the human achievement it's done. 
Well, maybe we'll be gone. Maybe the church will be gone. I'm not quite sure. But this is, this is a very powerful prophecy of the end times. And we really have to talk about Daniel, specifically about Daniel chapter 9 to completely understand it. But let's talk about Daniel. Here, i got to put it into historical context because it's so important. Daniel is such an amazing, it is such a cool book of the Bible. About half of it's written in Hebrew, the other half of it's written in Aramaic, meaning that not only was there a Jewish audience, there was a secular audience as well. It goes back and forth. It's the only book in the Bible that does this. It's the only book of the Bible that has a non-Jew as an author in one of the chapters. And we'll talk about that when we get there too. But let's turn over to the book of, of Daniel. Historically, when he was 16, the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar, came down from Babylon and they, they stole him from his land. Along with all of the smart young men and women, in addition to the ones that you know from Sunday school, who are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, growing up um, with the church full of knuckleheads and VeggieTales, I, I remember them as uh, Chadrach, Barnchak, and Benny. <laughs> right? So, but here's the thing. They were not, that's not their real names. They have different names. These are their pagan names. Because they were pushed into a culture that did not honor or love God. A culture bent on conquest, bent on greed, bent on you know, sexual pleasures, you name it. The Babylonians, the Chaldeans, they were doing it. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel's name was actually Belshazzar when he gets hauled off. They go to college. They go to Babylonian college for three years because they are, they are going to be trained to serve Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is a bad guy. He is evil. He is a tyrant. He is mean. He's vicious. He's like all these other characters that we've read in the Bible. He will do anything and everything to get power, to keep power, to be greedy. It's all about him. And in his mind, he feels that he has been empowered by the gods to get away with murder. So he's got himself justified. He's got himself divinely justified to do whatever he wants to do. He's a bad guy. And now these young men are going to the University of Babylon. They're being indoctrinated with Chaldean thought, values, and their whole purpose is to serve Nebuchadnezzar. Here's the fascinating thing about them. They actually go in and then they, they settle in and they begin to work and they begin to be diligent. They begin to learn. They probably learned astrology, astrology, that too. But astronomy there, mathematics, everything that you could possibly think of, they were learning and they were absorbing it and they were getting smarter and they were getting wiser, but they would not bend their knee. The strategy of the Babylonians was to get these kids and to break them to strip their culture and their values right out of these kids. The Babylonians were excellent at doing this, but they could not get Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The best that they could do is change their names, but here's their real names. These are the names that we should actually know instead of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and Benny, and Barnchak, and you know, 
These are the names that they should be called by because these are their God-given names that their families gave them. But we've just, I don't know, we just learned it the other way. So Shadrach's real name is Hananiah. Shadrach in Chaldean means uh, the commander of Aku, the moon god. So they give this, this young man saying, you are, you're, you're associated with the moon god. But his real name, Hananiah, means that the Lord is gracious. And they're trying to take his identity away from him. Meshach. Ready for this one? This one's, this one's kind of in, interesting. Aku, the, the god of light. So we're going to take your identity away from you. We're going to give you the name of the god of light. And uh, there's a lot of linguistics involved, but if you break it down, if you really push it hard, um, say your name is your name's Satan. Isn't that, isn't that, it's Lucifer. Wow. Lucifer is the god of lights. Isn't that strange? We're going to take this child of God, and we're going we're gonna to cram our stuff down his throat, and we're going to rename him, we're going to rewire him, and we're going to call him Lucifer the devil. So it's disgusting, right? So next time your kids act off, don't call them devils, <laughs> right? All those little devils. So there's power in words, right? All right, this isn't my flesh. Oh, those little faggots. What happens if you keep on doing that? I know it was harsh, but I checked. I don't think that was my flesh. You begin to speak labels on people, and eventually they're going to accept them. Watch what you say. There's power in the words. Uh, sticks and stones, they break bones, but words are more dangerous. They hurt worse than sticks and stones. I think I would rather have been beaten physically than uh, being abused by words from people. I think physical pain would be much more preferable at times. So watch what we say. Again, I wasn't prepared for that, I think, but I think that was God. So uh, Meshach is not Lucifer. His name is Mishael, which is his real name. Who is like God is the translation. And Abednego is the servant of Nebu, the god of intelligence is what they're trying to lay on him. But his real name is Azariah, the Lord is a helper. And so as hard as the Babylonians tried, as hard as Nebuchadnezzar tried to break these kids, these teenagers, they broke Babylon. They broke Nebuchadnezzar. They're the ones that say, we will not bow our knee to that idol. We'll not bow our knee, our knee to this system. We're not going to bow our knee to this ideology because we know what the truth is. Good King Josiah sowed into our nation and we've absorbed it. We know who we are. We know the word of God. We're not going to bow our knee to your silly God. And, he's, and we know the story from Sunday school. I'm going to put you in the furnace. They, they, put, they put these young men, these teenagers, into the fiery furnace, and Jesus shows up and he saves them. And that 
because of the faith of these men that would not bow their knee, that were not affected by the culture, they were not indoctrinated by a university system. Where do they get their values from, by the way? How do you do this? Like, we send our kids off to college, and they get Something happens to our kids when we send them to college. Why? How come nothing happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? How come they were willing to go under the fire? What, how, what, what is it? I don't know. I mean, I really don't know, but I mean, we could speculate. It's got to be the way that they were raised. And I don't mean this flippantly, but maybe they were homeschooled. I don't know. Maybe they, maybe they had, you know, the temple, you know, the, the, the rituals of temple instilled in them. But something happened where they knew and understood the presence of God was more important than bowing to an idol. And they did it. And they, not only did they save themselves, Nebuchadnezzar's like scratching his head. It's like, man, I've been in charge for a long time. I've never seen something like this. None of my angels will go into a fire and save somebody. So they get the attention of Nebuchadnezzar. And you guys know the story of the dream, hopefully. Nebuchadnezzar has this horrible dream. He can't figure out what it is. His magicians, his magi, they can't figure out what the dream is either. He's like, I'm going to kill everybody. And Daniel walks in and he says, uh, I can interpret your dream. Not only can I interpret your dream, I can actually tell you what you dreamed word for word last night. And I don't know, maybe you're thinking about that. that that's impossible. What would it be like if I could tell you everything that you are thinking inside of your head. Or I could tell you what your dreams were. And you might be thinking logically, okay, like, biblical, like Bible stories, that sounds cool. But that can't really happen, can it? Well, it did here. Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Nebuchadnezzar says, I want this talent in my court. And Daniel becomes basically the prime minister of all Babylon. It's pretty cool. And he gets elevated to a place of incredible leadership. Who else is like that in the Bible? Joseph. Joseph is also like this. Joseph is, he gets elevated into a high level of leadership. He is also a man that interprets dreams. They're very similar. In fact, uh, I love the Bible because it's so transparent and real. Like we have heroes, I have heroes, like Moses is one of my heroes, David of course is a hero of mine, but we all have, we all have heroes that are in the Bible, and what's so neat about the Bible and about God and the scriptures and the way that they present it is that God tells us all of their junk too. Like how, like David, all of David's sins are in print for all eternity. We know how bad he was. And aren't you glad that you're not in the Bible? I mean, you might be thinking to yourself, man, I wish I, I'm, I'm, I pray a lot. I wish I was in the Bible. Well, really, you want to be in the Bible? You want God to expose all of your sins? I mean, look what he did to Moses. We get to know all of Moses' junk. And God doesn't have a problem reprimanding his beloved ones in his holy scriptures because he loves us. He's making them a great illustration. But guess what? Neither Joseph and neither Daniel have anything negative said about them. There is not one bad word. There is no, of course they sinned at some point, but there's no record of them sinning. And those are the only two guys that the scriptures say, you know what? They didn't do anything wrong. 
or at least we didn't record their wrong stuff. So there's something special about Daniel and, and, and Joseph. We need to ask why. Another interesting thing about Daniel. In chapter 9, we're going to get to it. We'll probably read, it's easy to read over kind of fast. It, it, it's easy to miss. But Daniel, there's only two people in the Bible that are called beloved by God. Daniel and John the Revelator. Those are the only two. Like Moses and Abraham, God calls them friends. When Jesus is with his disciples, he says, you know what, you guys are amazing servants. You guys, you guys, are, just, you guys are great. You serve God as if you're slaves. You are amazing disciples. You're faithful somewhat, Peter. But I'm going to call you friends, right? So this is the cool thing about being a Christian, about being part of God's family, is that God sees us as friends, as children, as even siblings with Jesus. It's hard to get our heads around that kind of stuff, but this is the identity that he wants us to accept about who we are in him. He's friends. And when what Jesus does with friends is really neat. Are you a friend of Jesus? One of the fruit of it is how expansive is the kingdom of God in your life. Because if you're a friend of Jesus, he's, gonna, he's going to let, he's gonna let you play in the kingdom. That's neat. Like you get to do stuff that Jesus does. You get to lay hands on the sick and they get well. You get to speak life into situations, prophetically speaking life into people, instead of calling them names. Right? That's what friends of Jesus do. But only John, and John the, uh, only John the Revelator and only Daniel are the ones that are called beloved by God. You know what that means? Well, look what they do. Daniel... Joseph and John, not only do they get to do the friends stuff with Jesus and God, but they also get to do the beloved stuff. That means that God can trust them with the images of the end of the world. So yeah, these two guys here, I am going to show them the end of the world because they are beloved by me. They, I trust them with this future. Um, I don't have time to get into it, but when God begins to download the future into Daniel's mind and his soul, not only the, the present future that he's living in, but our future right now in the future that is probably in the, in the, in the real close future, like, like the end of the world, when God begins to show Daniel these things, like he's like, he can't take it. He's like physically exhausted just from getting this download from God. Same thing happens with John the Revelator. He's over, overcome by God's revelation physically. It's amazing. All right. Let's go to chapter 9. So hopefully we understand a little bit about the context of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar is curious about these young men. He gets wrecked by God. Like you, you, you get too close, you start messing around with God, and he's going to get a hold of you. He got a hold of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, he's Hitler, folks. He is that mindset. And God got a hold of him because he was, he, his heart was open enough and curious enough about the greater things of God that God got a hold of him, made him go crazy. 
and he lost the kingdom because he was running around naked and eating grass and stuff. And God is working on him. God made him crazy so that God could actually rewire his mind. And he comes out of it, and he comes out of a repentant man. And he says, I have been an evil, selfish, greedy dictator, but God saved me. Chapter 4 of Daniel was written by Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king. It's the only document in the Bible that is written by a pagan king, a pagan, let alone. And this is something that your history books won't tell you. Not only did it get published here, but Nebuchadnezzar published his testimony of being with God throughout the whole known world. But you're not, you'll hear about Nebuchadnezzar in the history books, but they're not going to tell you that he had an encounter with God. And he decided to use his influence to change the world by sending out his account all over the world. History books won't tell you that. But that's the truth. After, after Babylon, uh, as this gets prophesied to, um, a new empire, very close, very similar, similar culture. The Persians come in, and they just basically, they just, they just take Babylon away from Nebuchadnezzar and his family, or that, that, that whole thing. And Daniel gets elevated again into high level of leadership. And so let's uh, read chapter 9. Hopefully this will make sense. In the first year of Darius, the son of Xerxes. Um, okay, anybody see the movie 300? All right, this is the guy, Xerxes. This is the guy in the bikini with the gold loop and, you know, the muscles and the shiny, glittery stuff. He's the bad guy. He's the bad guy in history, too. But his son, Darius, knew Daniel. In the first year of Darius, the son of Xerxes, who was made ruler over Babylonia, after the Babylonian kingdom in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord, given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So Daniel remembers or has it written down. He has Jeremiah's prophecy that they're going to be in captivity for 70 years. God imposed disciplined captivity for 70 years. After the 70 years, they're going to be released. So Daniel knows the future, and it's not symbolic. Some of, the, some of the times when we read Bible stuff, the 70s and the 70 times 7s and all this kind of stuff, it's symbolic, but this isn't. This is literal, and this happened 70, day, 70 years to the day they get released. So I turned to the Lord, God, and I pleaded with him in prayer, petitioning and fasting in sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord, my God, and I confessed. Now Daniel knows the future. He's been given the future. And what does he do? He prays. He's praying for something that God has already ordained. This is why he's given the, the, the privilege to see the end of the world. It's because, I don't know, if I knew what the future was, why would I bother praying for it? Does that make sense? Like, if I knew I was going to win the lottery, would I continue in prayer saying, God, would you please let me win the lottery? No, I already know I'm going to win, so why bother praying for it? 
This is the problem with some people that think that everybody is destined to either go to heaven or go to hell. What's the purpose of praying if everybody's been predestined? What's the purpose of serving if everything, if God's planned everything out in, in, in the future and we, don't, we have no play, we have no free will in anything? What's the purpose of praying? What's the purpose of outreach? What's the purpose of evangelism if everything has already been predestined? Yet, again, we don't understand this. Daniel has been shown the future. He knows what's going to happen, and yet he decides to pray into it. Again, we don't do this. We only pray for stuff that we need, and we only pray to get an answer from God to see the future. But when we already have the answer, when you already have your gift, when you already have God's blessing, do you still continue to pray fervently? Listen to how he prays. O Lord, the great awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with us all, who love him and obey his commands. We have sinned and have done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. Okay, let's stop right there. This is the good guy. This is Daniel, who has no sin recorded in the scriptures. Everybody else does, with the exception of Joseph. Everybody else has some sin recorded in the Bible. And he says, forgive us of our sin. In other passages, he says, forgive me of my sin. Now, I see, if I was writing this, I'd be like, Oh, God, forgive them of their sin. This is the character of a man that we're dealing with. Like, I don't know, probably the worst thing that he's ever done, he probably stubbed his toe in the temple and said a bad word, right? That's probably the extent of Daniel's sin. Yet he's lumping himself into the category of a sinful nation because that's what mature people do. We have been wicked. And have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and your laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name, O king, our princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The men of of Judah and all the people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, and in all the countries, where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. Like, like, he knows that good things are coming. Like, everybody gets to go home. Right? They've, we've paid our dues. He's no longer a teenager when he's writing this. He's an old man serving a new king in a new empire. He's got a long career of being around power and successful people. He could have easily let the, the world system seep into who he was, yet he prays like this. And this is a very long prayer. Did you know? Uh, okay, we need, do you know that you need to pray in life? I, I pray every day, and it's like, oh man, my prayer life is just. Because I, I pray like, you know, just, just okay, here, here, this, is what, this is it. I'm not praying in the Spirit. Like, I'm coming to God with petitions and needs and wants and all this kind of stuff. But rarely do I pray inside of God or do I pray in the the Spirit. And this is what God's calling us into. He's calling us into a deeper connection with Him where, where our prayer life matters and it is powerful and it is not dictated by circumstances. Most of us pray when things go bad, 
Oh, God, would you help me? See, th- look, things are going good. They get to go home. Yet Daniel is on his knees and he's weeping. And this prayer gets more intense and it gets more rapid and it gets more passionate. It gets more emotional. Is your prayer life emotional? There's nothing wrong with it being emotional. In fact, we ought to get to the point where we pray with groans, with words we don't understand. Let's skip to 11 just for the sake of time. He goes through a lot of stuff. A lot of it's very repetitive. It is okay if you're praying for the same thing over and over again. He is praying the prayer of redundancy prayer. Anybody gets that? The prayer of redundancy prayer. Redundancy prayer. All right. Now, verse 17. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on the desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, because, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, act. O Lord, hear for your sake. O my God, do not delay because your city and your people, they bear your name. So he's like he's going from kind of getting repetitive. He's going from kind of petition to, to like it, it, in, in the language and the literature of this, the verbs get more closer together. Like all the flowery stuff begins to peel off in his very simple prayer. Oh, Lord, listen. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, act for your sake. Oh, my God, don't delay. All right, this is, this is the passion that's coming. And this, look what happens next. And while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin, probably the guy that, again, probably said a bad word when he stubbed his toe. While I was confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and making my request to the Lord, my God, for his holy hill. And while I was still in prayer, Gabriel. Gabriel's an archangel. There's only three of them. They're the the top three dogs. Michael, the archangel, is the the angel that, that wars for us. He is the mighty general. He's the one with the sword. Michael's fighting for you right now. In realms we do not see or understand. Against principalities and powers that are bent for your destruction. Michael is fighting them. He's archangel number one. And then there's Gabriel, who is the messenger angel. He is the same angel that gives the annunciation to Mary, the mother of Jesus. He is the one that says, I've got the answer. The answer is Jesus. I am proclaiming that he is coming. Messiah is coming. He has that experience. Oh, and then the other archangel is is the one that we don't talk about. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel... The man I had seen earlier in a vision came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice or the evening service or the vespers service. 
Night church. We should do night church again. Oh, here's the thing. He's in a pagan country. They don't do church in Persia. This is, the this is huge, guys. This is the character of a man that gets to see heaven, that gets to see the future, that gets full-blown revelation. He does church when there is no church. See, this is the, the, the sacrifice of evening was a dedicated, it was a church service time that he experienced when he was a teenager. And that was the last time he actually experienced it in a corporate setting. Yet, the discipline of this young man, when the corporate setting was taken away, he was not taken out of church or temple. He templed every day. And then in the night seasons, he had his special vespers thing. So what the Bible, what, what, what he's saying is this is, a, this is only supposed to be done in the temple, yet he doesn't have a temple, so he's doing it anyway. Like if you didn't have Granite Creek, would you be churching on Sunday morning? Would we have the discipline? I'd just say we were the underground church of China. And it's Sabbath, it's the day, or it's Sunday. It's the day to be with the Lord. Would you do it? Would you go to church if nobody was watching? <laughs> Daniel does. It's amazing. Daniel's the kind of person that prayed even though it was painful. That's why he got thrown into the lion's den. Uh, we're going to have the Magi at Living Nativity. You know that? The, the white, three, uh, three wise men. Who knows? There's probably 300 wise men. We don't, have any, no, we don't know how many wise men there were. We, just has, we have frankincense and myrrh. So therefore, we think that there were three wise guys. We don't know how many there were. But they were the magi from Persia. Astrologers, astronomers, soothsayers. But guess who was in charge of them? Daniel was. So a decree comes out. It says, you guys are going to have to worship this pagan idol, and or you, you cannot, you have to, you have to pray to the king only. And Daniel says, "I can't do it, king. You know me. I got to have my church time." He did it three times a day. He he knelt in his room by himself. He prayed prayers like this that were intense, all by himself in private, uh, heading east west. And he knew because of his prayer, he was going to get thrown into the lion's den. So prayer is painful for him. Prayer meant his imminent death. What is prayer to us? Prayer is an inconvenience. Prayer is boring. Prayer is difficult. Prayer is costly. What do we say? I don't have time to pray. I am too busy to pray. I've got to finish the next season of Game of Thrones. I, I don't have time for this. And even when we try to get ourselves into a position of prayer, we can't do it. We don't know how. We get, our mind drifts. We're thinking about our bills. We're thinking about our neighbors. We're thinking about things that, that are not of God. It's hard. It's costly. It's, it's, I mean, it, it might not be physically painful to pray, but it's like... It's like, it's like or it goes against our very nature to pray. 
to give this type of devotion and dedication. But this is what's amazing about David's devotion. I don't know if you caught it. Gabriel interrupts his prayer. Isn't that cool? Like he's just going on and on and on. He's being repetitive. He's praying the th- same thing over and over and over again. He's getting repetitive. He's getting, he's, getting, he's getting focused. He's getting passionate. And guess who heard? Heaven did. And Gabriel comes down and interrupts his prayer. I want to get to that point where God interrupts my prayers. Knock, knock. Interrupting cow. Moo! <laughs> See? This is what happens. <laughs> this is a really bad show. This is what happens when you have a nine-year-old. And this is what happens to him. He gets interrupted. It's like, Gabriel, you're busting my flow. I'm praying in the spirit here, and you come and interrupt me. No, he didn't do that. He's like, yes. Gabriel's response is, I've been with you the whole time. As soon as you, as soon as you threw up the prayer, we were there. He says, but you were doing something, and we're taking note, and we're going to let you know more. This is what God wants. You don't need to be praying because you already know the future. You don't need to be praying because you've already been blessed. The, the time is done. You guys done your time. You're going back to the, the beautiful land. No, you don't have to. Regardless, he prays into it, and he gets a visitation from Gabriel, and Gabriel tells him about Messiah. He tells him about the future. He tells him about the anointed one, the holy one. Uh, I don't have time to get into it, but the rest of uh, the rest of chapter nine, the next the, the, the revelation of the abomination of the desolation, uh, the Greeks eventually will come in and take over the country, and well, this is so this is so disrespectful, but they. The Greeks come in, and they sacrifice pigs on the Jewish altar. And then they set up, they set up big, big idols of um, Zeus and Aphrodite. And it's so offensive. Like, culture, that is like the worst thing you could do. It causes the Hasmonean, has the, the Maccabean revolt, and, and the Maccabeans, these are the Jewish, the Jewish brothers. So strong Jewish brothers, they rise up against this Greek Hellenistic influence, and they, just, they, they overcome it. This is where they celebrate Hanukkah. This is where Hanukkah, the Hanukkah celebration comes in. We don't have that in our Bible, but that's historically that's what happens. But Daniel prophesied that that was going to happen, but it's also going to happen in the future where the Antichrist is going to come in and he's going to set up this idol in the Holy of Holies, the abomination of desolation. And he's going to say, this is who we worship. We worship mankind. Uh, okay, real quick. There's two principalities. Okay, besides Jesus putting himself on the cross because he knew he had to pay the ultimate sacrifice. But there are two evil principalities behind it. There was the religious spirit, and then there was the political spirit. The Romans nailed him on the cross, and the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees nailed him on the cross. They partnered together to, get, to, hunt, to hang Jesus an extreme form of religious dogma and the ultimate expression of secular humanism embodied in the Roman Empire. The Roman Republic did not count on gods for their power. They trusted the Republic 
They made themselves God. The emperors eventually made themselves God. Daniel talks about that in detail. Daniel talks about Alexander the Great coming and taking over not only Israel, but taking over all of Persia. He talks about Alexander the Great in detail. And after Alexander dies, he talks about his successors, the four kingdoms, in detail. And it is so precise. It is so accurate. The modern Bible scholars, they say, well, it had to have been written after the fact. So this is a prorated prophecy. So this is not true prophecy. They just, they're just, you know, they're just turning the clock back. <laughs> the problem is we've got the Septuagint. The problem is they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls that have the book of Daniel in it. And the scholars sat on it. They would not publish it. Because, why? Because it contradicted the reality of a supernatural God that could predict the future. Everything that Daniel talks about is true. Now, if you're the type of a right brain person where you have to have proof, where you're a Thomas, where you need to stick your hands in Jesus' side to make sure that it's real, like if you have doubts about the scriptures and whether they're holy and inspired, like you, I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to challenge these, you, you, you people that got to have proof where faith isn't good enough. It's okay. God makes room for you. Like if faith isn't good enough, if you need proof, chapter 9 is probably one of the strongest scriptures on the proof of the divinity of Jesus. Because uh, Gabriel begins to talk to him about these 70s and 70s, basically all this, these numbers come into play. And if you're interested, email me. I'll send, you, I'll send you information. But basically he says, from the day that the Jews get freed, the end of the 70-year period, there's going to be some 2,000 days, years, days, until the Messiah is anointed king. And to the day, to the day is the day that Jesus marches into triumph on, on Palm Sunday. Scholars don't deal with it. They choose to stick their head in the sand. They can't, they can't get their head around the fact that the Bible is that accurate. And if it's that accurate in ancient times, guess what? It's accurate for us now. There will be, these things will come to pass. And whether you see the signs or not, it doesn't really matter. Because of the doctrine of eminence, that it will happen. That means you need to be motivated that you get your act together now. He, uh, it could be another 2,000 years before Jesus comes back, but chances are not. It's like looking and feeling like it could, like the twinkle of my eye could be it. And this is what we need to pray into. All right, I'm done. Let's get the band up here. Um, one of the images that Daniel gives of the empires, Rome or uh, Babylon is given this lion, actually this very lion with wings. If you, if you see it, this is the lion. This cute little lion's got wings. This is on, ba- this is on Nebuchadnezzar's Ishtar temple, or his, his palace. Real thing. I think the Germans own it now. Um, 
Uh, then the next empire is Alexander the Great. He gets represented by a cheetah that doesn't touch the ground and a goat that never touches the ground. Persia is this bear. But Rome is the machine. It is, they don't, Daniel doesn't give him an animal. Doesn't, give, doesn't anthropomize him. Makes him a hideous monster with iron teeth. Hideous that destroys people. And it is the secular human attitude that says, we don't need God, we can do it without God. And as we see our world begin to develop, we get two major systems. We get the secular humanist attitude that says, we can be good without God. We don't need his values, we don't need his morals. We can figure out how to do society without him. So there's that one camp that that stemmed out of the machine beast that Daniel talks about. It's symbolic, but it's very literal, too. It's very real in our, in our age. And then the other, thing, the other principality that put Jesus on the cross was that religious spirit. And we see a very strong, angry religious spirit in our world today. A religious spirit that kills and maims and murders and strips and takes away dignity from people and takes their culture away from them. Jesus never intended to take culture away. He came to transform culture. He came to embrace their dance because they created it. But he also came to take the evil out of their societies. We're going to see at the end, uh, if I could have the ushers come to the front, at the benediction, when we bless, my dad's going to talk a little bit about that. And you'll see the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'll see, you'll see pure, undefiled religion at work. And this is what Jesus is all about. And this is what the gospel is all about. Would you stand and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word today. And I just pray that it will just penetrate deep inside our hearts. That your word can be trusted, that it is true, that it is powerful. And God, I pray that you just get us into a position like Daniel, into a, a, a breakthrough posture where it's just God or nothing, where we want to go deep, where we want more, where we want to be recognized not by our name and by our accomplishments, but we want to be recognized by your name and who you've called us to be. We pray this in your name.